Isaiah, from Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 7. But now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in your place. Since you were precious in my sight, you have been honored, and I have loved you. Therefore, I will give men for you and people for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. Our passage of scripture this afternoon comes from 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 18. Here now the reading of God's holy and inspired word. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities, and powers having been made subject to him. As we consider the resurrection of Christ, how do you know that the resurrection of Christ has anything to do with you and with your life? As we consider this question, we're going to look at this passage from 1 Peter, which has a couple of thorny passages in it, things that sometimes seem a bit obscure or have prompted some, some different uh, interpretations. We'll work through this passage in light of the context Peter is writing in, and then tie these things together. We're going to look at the suffering of Christ, Noah's deliverance, and your baptism. We begin here in verse 18 with Peter reminding his hearers of the good news. Now as we look at this passage, we have to remember to keep the context in mind. It's been wisely stated A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. 
In other words, if you're not understanding the context of a particular passage, you're likely to be perhaps misinterpreting things. What is the context in which Peter is writing this passage? Peter is writing to the people of God who have been dispersed and who are suffering for the sake of righteousness. He reminds them over and over again throughout the book that their faith is tested as through fire, but they are to stand firm, that when they suffer, they are to trust in Christ. And here in this passage, as he's been speaking to them, he says, who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. It's from verse 14. In verse 18 here, he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins. When you are suffering, he says, don't forget, Christ suffered for you in your place. Although the Son of God did not sin, he had no need to share in the miseries of this life. And yet for your sake and for the sake of your salvation, he took on human flesh. and was made in every way like his brothers, suffered and died. And Peter reminds us that Christ who suffered was the just given for the unjust. He was righteous. He had no sin. But he died for you and for me, the unjust, who needed a righteous substitute so that we might stand in the presence of God. And so Christ brings us reconciliation. Those who were separated by sin. And we have peace with God through the work of Christ, through his death and resurrection. As, as Augustine said, as he says, speaking to the Lord, you made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And we have this through the blood of Christ. Now notice here, uh, it says that he suffered once for sins. We are not to read this as he suffered once upon a time or, or something like that, but he suffered once for all. This word here signifies it as a unique suffering. And the work is finished. That was what Jesus cried on the cross. It is finished. The blood has been shed. The sacrifice has been made. And the people of God have been reconciled once for all. We have the assurance and the confidence that we can stand in the presence of God because of the blood of Jesus. Peter goes on to say, he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. He was crucified in the flesh, but he was made alive in the spirit. And if we're going to understand the difficult section that comes next, we have to recognize that this word spirit is the transition between verses 18 and 19. Now we come to the thorny passage. Christ suffered, so you can have the encouragement that when you suffer, he's not asking you to walk anywhere that he didn't walk himself. But what's going on with verse 19? By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, 
who formerly were disobedient. What is this talking about? This has uh, sometimes been interpreted that um, uh, between Good Friday and Sunday morning, that Christ was preaching to the spirits in hell. Um, the various spin-offs of that. Um, I want to work through this passage so we can understand what it is saying. I don't think it's saying that. So remember the transition word here, in the spirit. He went and preached to the imprisoned spirits, to, that is, the disobedient ones. And the text tells us when this was that he went and preached. It's maybe a little bit obscure in this translation, but the main verb here is that he went and preached, and then it says, formerly, when. And when is that? When the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. Christ, in the Spirit, went and preached to a disobedient generation, those who are now in prison, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Remember, where, where is Jesus between the cross and the empty tomb? His body's resting in the grave, but what did he say to the thief on the cross? This day you will be with me in paradise. We ought not to interpret this as some denominations have that, well, there's another chance after death because, look, uh, see, Jesus went and preached to the spirits of those who had died and gave them another chance to repent. No, uh, first comes death and then judgment. Or the late medieval idea that uh, Jesus had to go to hell to free the uh, Old Testament saints from limbo. No, uh, no such place. Jesus um, here is, is we're not referring to after his death and crucifixion, but rather in the spirit in the days of Noah. Now you might be saying, well, wait a second. What about the Apostles' Creed that we just sang? We just sang, he descended into hell. What does that mean then, if that's not what we're talking about here? Very briefly, um, uh, we want to um, remember here that um, this phrase, he descended into hell, comes from uh, the Latin creed. Um, this, the phrase itself is not actually in the original Greek creed, but it's added in the 5th century by a guy named Rufinius, uh, who himself clarifies that what this means is that Jesus rested in the grave. He descended into the grave. Um, and it's been uh, translated in a way which I think throws off the meaning a little bit. But it's for this reason that, um, for example, uh, the Heidelberg Catechism uh, is careful uh, to, to define what does it mean in question 44. It says, why is there added, he descended into hell? The answer, in my greatest sorrows and temptations, I may be assured and comforted that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony, which he endured throughout all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. Following Calvin's exposition of this phrase, um, our Westminster Larger Catechism uh, says this, wherein consisted Christ's humiliation after his death. Christ's humiliation after his death consisted in his being buried and continuing in the state of the dead and under the power of death till the third day, 
which hath otherwise been expressed in these words, he descended into hell. Jesus suffered the anguish and torments of hell on your behalf on the cross. He remained in the grave for three days. But he did not descend into hell to preach to anyone there or to limbo to rescue anyone. That's, that's a bit of a spurious explanation from this passage. His body was in the grave and his soul was in paradise that very day. So back to First Peter. If he's not saying that Jesus was in hell, then what is he saying here and what's his point? might say, wait a second, were there any preachers in the days of Noah? How could somebody be preaching to a disobedient generation in the days of Noah? Well, if you read what Peter has to say in 2 Peter 2 verse 5, there was a preacher. He speaks of Noah, the preacher of righteousness. By the Spirit of Christ, Noah was a preacher to his own generation. Now, lest we think that Noah, the preacher of righteousness, means that Noah was preaching some sort of a self-righteous doctrine of works, um, that's not what what the Bible means when it speaks of being a preacher of righteousness. He's preaching the righteousness of God. Remember? The just for the unjust. He's preaching the righteousness of Christ given by faith and repentance. He's not telling the generation around to simply behave better. He's telling them, repent, repent. And get on the ark, or you will perish. That's Noah's message by the Spirit of Christ. Now, what does this have to do with the context that we started with? Remember, the context of this passage is suffering for the sake of righteousness. Peter wants to encourage his hearers and us as well to stand firm in the face of suffering and persecution. And he tells us, remember that Christ suffered in your place, and he was sinless. He was the righteous, given for you the unrighteous. When you face trials, when you suffer for your faith, remember Christ suffered for you. Second of all, remember those who came before, who also endured. It's the same spirit of Christ in Noah that is given to you to stand firm in your generation. Do you think anyone listened to Noah, that disobedient generation? Do you think think they respected him because he preached righteousness? Was he not rejected? And I think we can see this a little bit more clearly if we look at a couple verses further down in chapter 4. I'm going to read 1 Peter 4, verses 4 through 6 here. Again, this is another passage that's been in tandem, uh, interpreted a little bit funny uh, with the other one. Starting in verse 4, Peter says, In regard to these, they think it strange that that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. 
Peter is still thinking about Noah here when he, when he writes this. Um, he, he, he looks at, uh, as it were, at those who he is writing to. He says, you're suffering for your faith, and you know what part of the problem is? It's because you aren't like the world around you. They live according to the lusts of the flesh, doing whatever they want. Um, and he, uh, he describes that. He says, they are, they are in this flood of dissipation. And you don't come join them. And what do they do? They speak evil of you. They malign you. They're there as the water is rising in this flood of dissipation. And they're saying, get off the ark. Come jump in the mud with us. It's so much fun. And he says, when, when you cling to Christ, when you stay on the ark, they begin to malign you. They say you're a, a holy roller or a hypocrite. He's reminding us here in our passage. Don't you think Noah also suffered and was maligned all the way back? What about all of the saints who came before of Abraham, David, the prophets? He wants us when we suffer to remember the suffering of Christ, to hold to the spirit of Christ which is in Noah, which is given to us as well. We might hold firm. Now, what about this, this other parallel passage? For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to the God in the spirit. You might say, see, uh, don't, don't people get a second chance? Look, the gospel was preached to those who are dead. Couldn't say it more clearly. That's not what he has in mind. We know that that doesn't happen. We know that first comes death, then the judgment. What is he talking about here? He's talking about believers who have died. In fact, they are believers who were judged according to men in the flesh. Look at the parallelism with verse 18. Christ was put to death in the flesh but made alive by the Spirit. And Peter is reminding his hearers of the others that they have known who have paid the ultimate price for their faith. Think of Paul fighting the wild beasts at Ephesus. Remember the other early Christians who were given over to the jaws and the flames and the blades when their enemies found these Christians and said, what's the worst possible thing we can do to them? Let's kill them. And Peter says, the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, those who clung to their faith in the face of Roman spears. It was preached to them that although they are judged by men in the flesh. The world judged them and executed them. But Peter says, they will live according to God in the Spirit. Although you too will die, perhaps persecuted to death, certainly judged by the world, yet through the gospel and the resurrection of Christ, you too will be made alive 
in the Spirit. Peter reminds us in verse 5, those who persecute the church will give an account to him who is to judge the living and the dead. But you will live with God, so stand firm when you suffer. People of God, the gospel does not promise you your best life now. In fact, for these brothers and sisters, it was the gospel that brought them persecution and death. They were judged by the world and executed because of the gospel. But they gained something so much greater. They they laid down their best life now for something even better. And Peter wants to remind us, this is your comfort in suffering. First of all, look to Christ who suffered for you, who has brought you to God. Consider Noah, the preacher of righteousness to a disobedient generation who held firm by the Spirit of Christ. And look to God's promise because Christ was made alive You too will pass through the flood to life while the flood of God's judgment overwhelms his enemies. People of God, if we stand firm in our faith, we too will suffer. We likely will be or have been maligned by those who don't understand why we would choose to stick with Christ. Perhaps we may even be killed one day for our faith as Many believers are in other parts of the world. But there's always, we don't want to think, oh, well, um, you know, that's nice for them and that generation, but that doesn't happen anymore. Um, All of us have the subtle call from the world, the flesh, and the devil to abandon our faith, to jump out of the boat, get in the water, in the flood of dissipation, And Peter says, don't forget that flood is the flood of judgment. Stand firm. Now, as Peter is talking about water here, uh, it reminds him of baptism. We might say, well, um, Noah had this very visible sign of his redemption as the water that flooded the earth lifted the ark upwards and into safety might say, I wish that I had a sign too. I wish I had a sign just like that. And Peter says, you do. It's in your baptism. As he takes a cue from Noah here and transitions into your baptism. Let's look at what he has to say. Um, There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What is this that he's talking about here? Um, There is um, an antitype, he says, or um, a corollary to to the the water of the flood, which now saves us. Now, I don't know about you, but I've met Roman Catholic people who like to quote this. Look, baptism saves you. It says right there in the Bible. But you've got to keep reading. What does that mean? It's not the 
Removal of the filth of the flesh, or to translate it another way, not the removal of dirt from the body. It's not about the water having just you know, special holy water. What, what is baptism about? It's an appeal in good conscience towards God. Now, here it's, it talks about an answer of a good conscience, and this word eperotema is, has more to do with a question. This is a request or an appeal. This is an appeal in good conscience to God. It means a sincere coming before the Lord. And what is it that we are appealing for? We are appealing to God that he might save us through the resurrection of Christ. We are appealing for the righteousness of Christ to cover our unrighteousness, that we might share in his newness of life, And this is the continuing mark of baptism in our lives today. It is an appeal in good conscience that God would save us through the resurrection of Christ. Now let's tie everything together. When you suffer for the sake of righteousness, remember Christ who suffered for you the righteous for the unrighteous, who has reconciled you with God and given you the promise and the assurance of eternal life. Remember Noah, the preacher of righteousness to a disobedient generation by the Spirit of Christ who didn't get out into the flood of dissipation but stayed on the ark. Remember the martyrs who came before, who treasured Christ as being far more valuable than anything else in this world. And when it comes to you and you say, Is it really worth it? The maligning, suffering for the sake of righteousness, maybe even death. Is it really worth it? How do I know that the resurrection of Christ has anything to do with me? What promise do I have that if I give up my best life now, And lay it down for something better that I will have eternal life at the resurrection. And Peter says, don't forget your baptism. This is a promise of God's covenant faithfulness. It's not merely about the external things, the washing with water. You probably don't remember your own baptism. Nevertheless, baptism, although... uh, we, we might not remember when we were baptized. We might not have been old enough. But, nevertheless, it has a continuing relevance and function, which is that with a sincere faith, we seek God's salvation through the resurrection of Christ. And you have the promise of union with him. He too was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit and you in union with him will be likewise. He is at the right hand of God, having been raised up with angels and authorities and powers made subject to him. You will share in the resurrection of the just, with Christ the firstfruits, People of God, 
when you suffer, remember your baptism. Look to God's promise and seek his faithfulness.